Well, we've been uh, preaching a series of sermons from Genesis uh, that we've been calling uh, Evergreen, the gift of life in the garden of God. And last, this, this week is going to be the fifth sermon in that series. Uh, last week, George uh, preached about uh, um, the covenant bet- community between God and the man and the woman that had been created. The creation of man is male and female, the covenant relationship that was between God and their marriage. Uh, and that covenant uh, that he mentioned was also kind of the model of our relationships in the body of Christ, this triangled relationship with God at the center, the apex of our relationships. And we've, as we progress through Genesis, we have looked at the creation of the world, the creation of man and the image of God, it's the stewards of God's creation. The creation of woman, now man as male and female. And now today we're going to look at the crisis, the crisis of sin in Genesis chapter 3. So this is probably one of the most well-known stories in all of Scripture as we, as we look at this uh, the story of the fall. The serpent, Adam and Eve, being tempted and eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is the story of moving from being naked and not ashamed to being naked and ashamed. That's the movement here. But before we dive into this, I want to remind us of the good news. <clears throat> the gospel before we look at sin. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the past uh, several months, um, as I've led in worship here at UPC, when I've had a chance to uh, share the prayer of confession, I have been starting, instead of with the prayer of confession, our sins, I've been starting with the assurance of pardon, which oftentimes comes after that, right? Right? And this is uh, something that I've picked up from John Calvin, actually quite a Reformed thing. He called it the Strasbourg Invention. Sounds like a great Reformed uh, title, doesn't it? It's the recognition that the only reason we can confidently come to God with our confession of sin is because of what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. We need that assurance to have the confidence to come. And so we read a text that reminds us of God's love and forgiveness in Christ to bolster our confidence as we confess our sins. So I would like to remind us of what God has done for us in Christ before we dive into this story of the fall. The fall is not just the fall of Adam and Eve. It is representative of our fall as well. So let's be reminded of God's love as we face sin. So let's start with Romans chapter 3, verse verse 23. This is the translation of the message, which is a modern contemporary translation. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives that God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right relationship, right standing with himself, a pure gift, He got us out of the mess we were in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the summary that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in the face of our sin. He loves us. He wishes to forgive our sin. We need only believe in him. We need no works. Christ has died and been raised for us. We shall have eternal life in his kingdom. We are no longer alone, but upheld by God's grace. And one day, all sorrow and wailing shall have an end. It's a great summary. So let's take the confidence of that 
of that good news throughout this sermon today as we go. And I'm going to remind us of it at least a few more times in the midst of this sermon as we go through this text about sin. Now, there's one more thing I want to do to prepare us to read this text today. I want to play a game with you. Uh, the game is called uh, Two Truths and a Lie. Have you ever played this? And here's how it works. I'm going to tell you three statements about myself. And two of them will be true and one of them will be a lie. And you have to guess which one's the lie. Sound kind of intriguing, huh? Okay. You must discern between truth and a lie. It will, I will read these three statements and then I'll ask you to vote on which one you think is the lie. So I hope that's clear, okay? You're going to have to raise your hand in a second here. So here we go. Here are the three statements. First statement. I ran the New York Marathon three times in my 30s and 40s. Second statement, when I was 12 years old, I started a coin-operated washer-dryer business with my brother and sister we called TJS Enterprises. Third statement, when I was 10 years old, I learned how to do trick riding on horseback. Let me repeat these. Number one, I ran the New York Marathon three times in my 30s and 40s. Number two, when I was 12 years old, I started a coin-operated washer-dryer business with my brother and sister we called TJS Enterprises. And the third, uh, when I was 10 years old, I learned how to do trick riding on horseback. Okay, you guys ready to vote? Ready for this? Okay. So raise your hand to the statement you think is the lie. Okay, the first one, the New York Marathon three times. Who thinks that's a lie? Okay, got a few people thinking I can't do that. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Number two, the coin-operated uh, washer-dryer business. Okay, a few more, a few more than that. Number three, the trick riding on horseback. Okay, that one got the most fun. No one thinks I could do that, right? Okay, that's good. Well, the lie is actually number one. Okay. I did not run the New York Marathon three times. I ran it two times. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I did, did, with my brother and sister, have a coin-operated laundry business that my dad set up in an apartment building he owned. We got to own the, the washer and the dryer. We made, we made little rolled coins every month and brought them to the bank. And to prove that I trick ride, here's something from my home movies, okay? <laughs> Love the white pants, yeah. And the fringe shirt, yeah, okay. Okay. And here comes the close-up my wife made me put in. Okay, there we go. Okay. Not bad, huh? Okay. <laughs> okay. Fun game. I encourage you to play it later with your friends. Um, here's the thing about my lie about the New York Marathon. It has some truth in it and some distortion. This is how you play the game. If you want to be a really good player, you mix some truth of the lie to make it more believable. So over the years, if you do this, you can become a very skilled player at this game. You make every statement so plausible that it becomes very hard to distinguish between the truth and the lie. I think we're asked to kind of do this every day, to decipher between truth and lies. So as we prepare to read this text from Genesis 3, I want you to be listening for the blending of the truth and the lie, okay? So why don't you grab the, the Bibles in front of you, the, the black book in front of you, turn to page 2, 
and stand where you are if you're able. We're going to read from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We're reading the word of God, starting with verse 1, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Please be seated. So let's explore this story a bit. Uh, the lead up is pretty dramatic, isn't it? I mean, the first three chapters of Genesis, wow. Adam and Eve are created in the image of God. Adam and Eve were created for each other and for God in covenant relationship. And they're given dominion over the earth. They are the stewards of the earth. Pretty lofty role. And God walks in the garden with them. They are in relationship with God and they know God's goodness and they have all that they need. But they've been given one prohibition. You may, not, you may freely eat of any tree but one. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you shall die. Now, I don't know. I, I find it much harder uh, to um, honor a prohibition than a command to do something. I'm naturally wired to want to do something. So eat the fruit. I could do that. Or steward the earth. Yeah. Or love each other. That's easier for me than don't eat this fruit because I said so. But both of these things are for good. Um, I mean, one calls us to action, the other calls us to no action, but really obedience, which is an action in and of itself. So this tempter comes, right? The serpent, this craftier of all animals comes, and it becomes clear that this serpent is the enemy of God, trying to bring confusion, trying to draw Adam and Eve under his control. And he's kind of an interesting character in that he is truly a tempter. He does not force them to do this. Adam and Eve choose to do this themselves. They eat. They make their own decision. But the temptation takes this form. First of all, the serpent says, did God really say not to eat from any tree in the garden? Ooh, little truth, little lie. Put together, the serpent is subtle. He changes God's word to distort the truth. He wants God's word to appear a bit harsh and restrictive. And the woman corrects him with a fairly accurate recounting of God's word. We could eat the fruit of the tree in the garden except the fruit from the tree in the middle, nor touch it, or we will die. Well, the touch it part, she's added that, so she makes it even more restrictive. 
The gist of this is true, but she adds this restriction. And now the serpent moves to the next phase to, to try to remove her fear of eating this by directly contradicting God's word. You will not surely die. Direct lie. It's almost like he's saying, God is trying to keep something from you. Don't you want your eyes to open and know good and evil? The serpent seems to be saying, God is restricting you from being fully human. Don't you want to be fully human? It's interesting to me at this point that the woman doesn't consult with anyone. I mean, think about it. She doesn't talk to Adam, who seems to be right next to her during this whole experience. She doesn't talk with God, who she's able to walk in the garden with seemingly on a regular basis. She doesn't ask for clarification between this kind of conflicting stories. Instead, she, and she doesn't even count on this covenant relationship he has with Adam and God together. Instead, she acts, and she acts in Adam along with her. And that's the shape of the sin. Eve and Adam decide that something is missing from their lives and they want more. They want to be better. They want to grow. She's looking for further blessing and fulfillment, more power that comes with knowledge, the knowledge that has the potential for evil and the potential for good. And by eating this fruit, Adam and Eve fall. So we call original sin. Good is no longer rooted in what God says adds to our life but in what people think might be desirable to make their life whole. It's their perception, not the creator's proclamation. They distort what is good into what is evil. It's a sad day. It's a day of failure. But it's a day that gets played out in all of our lives, doesn't it? I mean, it is our inheritance. We know exactly what this is because we make these kinds of choices all the time. And what are the consequences of these choices? And Adam and Eve's eyes are opened. Ironically, it brings them shame and not fulfillment. They know evil because it's now in them. And they now hide from each other with clothes. They hide from God in the trees and the bushes. Guilt and shame, the loss of innocence. They're now naked and ashamed. Well, I am a grandfather now. I have a one and a half year old uh, granddaughter. And I love to watch her explore things. She's constantly looking into different things. I, I, as I watch her explore the oven, I am glad that she is well supervised and is told not to touch the hot surfaces. When I watch her explore the electrical sockets in our house, I'm glad we put childproof protection covers on all of the sockets. Prohibition is good for Maggie. It is the best for Maggie, but it's hard. I know if I wanted to really know what heat was like or what electricity was like, I could burn myself. I could get burned or I could put my finger in an outlet and get shocked and figure out what electricity really was. I'd really know electricity then or know what heat was. And I think this is the kind of um, thing that, that happened when Adam and Eve had their eyes opened. They were shocked and burned by the reality that evil was now in their lives. They did not listen to what was good and best for them Adam and Eve somehow felt they were not enough as God created them. They felt they had to do something to be more. Pastor George Hinman has reminded us of this lie several times in his sermons. He calls it, you know, instead of being to do, we do to be. Um, 
We do not have to do anything to be who God created us to be. God created us already. Our identity is defined by our God, our creator. And nothing we do makes us more than God made us. Doing something in order to be something more. In God's eyes, we are already more. The truth is, we need to be who God made us to be, who God says we are, and then do what God calls us to do, to growing out of that identity and more into that identity. Be to do, not do to be. So at this point in the sermon, let's remind ourselves of the good news <laughs> again. Another text from Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation, condemnation to, for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. And Bonhoeffer's summary again, God loves us. He wishes to forgive our sins. We need only believe in him. We need no works. Christ has died and been raised for us. We shall have eternal life in his kingdom. We are no longer alone, but have held by God's grace. And one day, all sorrow and wailing shall have an end. Jesus is sometimes referred to as the second Adam. And I think it would be good to see how he handled temptation. Jesus' temptation is parallel to the temptation of Adam and Eve. If you recall, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, right after he was baptized, he went out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that time, Satan came to him and tempted him. The first temptation went something like this. It was to turn stones into bread. Satan said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus responded by saying, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Changing stones into bread was not what would make him the son of God, even though he was hungry. Jesus' identity did not come from doing a miracle. It came from the word of God at his, said at his baptism that he was the beloved son of God in whom I am well pleased. This is the word from the Lord. That is who Jesus is. Jesus resists the lie and remembers God's word and obeys it. Second temptation that Jesus experiences uh, is the temptation to jump from the, the temple's pinnacle. Satan says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. He will command his angels concerning you and, and on their hands he will bear you up. Jesus responds again. Again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. God's way is a different way, a way of a servant, a way of death and resurrection and life. Again, Jesus resists the lie by remembering God's word and obeying it. Third temptation. The devil takes Jesus up to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus responds and says, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. When offered all the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worshiping the devil, Jesus affirms the worship of God as the center of his life. He knows where power comes from. I mean, just like Adam, or just like Eve, he quotes the word of God. But unlike Adam and Eve, he obeys it. He does not buy into the lie, the deception. He is good. He is perfect. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. So how are we captured by, the, like Adam and Eve are captured by this sin? 
We do not have a tree that we're not supposed to eat from. We are different from Adam even that way. But we all know that we act contrary to God's word. We're not perfect. We do not trust and obey all the time. We fall like Adam and Eve fall. We follow our own judgment of what we want and not what God says. We buy into the lies. It is our condition. It is our nature to sin. We feel the need for more in order to be fully human, do to be. We buy into distortions of God's word in order to justify our longings to be more. We buy into the lie that we are not enough as we are. We need something added in order to feel whole or to feel safe or to feel full. And even with the best of intentions, we fall short. We're undisciplined. We are selfish. It's just who we are. Whether we are a person who is too much in touch with our brokenness, uh, feeling weighed down and insecure most of the time, or if we make the opposite mistake and deny our brokenness, we share the same fundamental problem, and that's called sin. We think we know better than God. It is easy to think about, uh, think it is all about my mistakes or all about my successes. It's all about my mistakes I made as a parent, or it's all about the success and happiness of my kids, or it's all about the, the money I didn't make, or it's all about the money that I made and how successful I am. The problem with living that way is that it's a lie. A lie that urges us to believe that in the end it is either my success or my failure that defines me. I mean, honestly, it can be a little depressing when we think in three chapters from creation to the fall is, is only... It's so quickly it happens, really in seven verses, isn't it? And this is our nature too. We fall. So back to our game. Two truths and a lie, right? Let's go back to that. The lie in this story is this, that Adam and Eve's sin defines them, and that their situation is hopeless. Now here's the first truth in the story. Adam and Eve sin, and so do we. But here's the second truth. Sin does not have the final word. God in Christ is able to redeem and restore Adam and Eve, just as God is able to redeem and restore you and me to the image of God that he created us to bear. So as we close our sermon, let's remind ourselves of the good news one more time. This time a verse from 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And Bonhoeffer's restatement, God loves us. He wishes to forgive our sins. We need only believe. We need no works. Christ has died and been raised for us. We shall have eternal life in his kingdom. We are no longer alone but upheld by God's grace and one day all sorrow and wailing shall end let's pray together Lord we come to you with the confidence of your love and forgiveness in Christ we confess that we are like Adam and Eve we think we know better than you sometimes and make choices that hurt us and hurt others instead of trusting you and obeying what you say is the best for us Lord, help us believe and obey and not buy into the lie. Help us to know that our sin does not define us 
Help us to know that our identity is as your beloved children created to bear the image of God. That is who we are. In Christ's name, amen.